girls for joining us. We appreciate you guys joining us this morning. Amen. Um, speaking of boys and girls, I coach U10 soccer. U10 soccer is soccer with boys that are under 10. And there's a rule to U10 soccer that I have yet to obviously understand, and that is keep things simple. Our first series of practices have had their own layers of complexity, and our boys haven't quite really been up to that layer of complexity that we've tried to assign them. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we have, a lot of things that we're trying to do, a lot of positions that we're trying to assign them. And it all came to a culmination on this past week when our boys played. You can see them very hesitant. You can see them very lacking lots of confidence, trying to figure out what do I do, where do I go. You know, I mean, we did this stuff, but I, now that I'm on the field playing a game, I don't really know where to go. And I had to really do some self-assessment in the process and realize, Coach, what are you doing? I'm the coach, so I asked myself, what are you doing? You need to simplify this. Teach them, teach them the basics and, and, and make, sure, make sure that in your, in your efforts to, to, to be complex, that you, don't, that you don't actually cause them to lose the very essence of, of, of their assignment, cause them to lose the very essence of, of, of the game. Because whether it be on job or whether it be at, uh, uh, at school or whether it be um, um, in, in games that you play, we can overcomplicate things. And we can overcomplicate them to the point that if you're not careful in your, in your attempts to be meticulous and in your attempts to be methodical, you can actually lose the very heart and the very essence of, of the thing that you're trying to trying to establish. And the same can be said, believe it or not, with the gospel. There's a simplicity to the gospel. And oftentimes what happens is that the gospel being simple scares us. And so we try to add stuff onto it to overcomplicate it. And in so doing, we end up losing it. The very essence of it. This is what's happening in Acts chapter 15 is that there's this simplicity at work. But there is a push against the simplicity. And that's where I want to focus on. Just a few points this morning. The first point is that the gospel is simple. And therefore doesn't need our additions. The gospel is simple and therefore doesn't need our additions. Paul and Barnabas have been on this, 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 this missionary journey that has concluded now. And they are, they are now back in Antioch, home base, so to speak, is where they were first sent out. And now that they are back in Antioch, they've stayed a little while, they've encouraged the believers along the way, and now there is pushback coming. And the pushback is coming from Judea. There are men that have come down, verse 1 says, and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and, and Samaria and, and, and describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, verse 5, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so literally as they are testifying about what God is doing in all the lands in which they have just returned from, there's a group of folk that are saying, well, wait a second, did you circumcise them? Because if you didn't circumcise them, none of it counts. Almost like moments, right, that we have to take selfies for and put them on Facebook. Because if you didn't take the picture and put it on Facebook, it didn't count, right? And, and that's kind of how this is working right now. It doesn't count because you didn't circumcise the people along the way. So Paul and Barnabas are confronted with this new challenge. But what we're about to see, even though this new challenge is not an outright rejection of the gospel, it's an addition to the gospel, it is still as dangerous as outright rejection. See, addition is just as dangerous as rejection because what it accomplishes, what it, or what it does, or what it performs in the lives of the people who are listening and receiving it. It puts additional strain on the people and ultimately pushes people away from the message, away from the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the first question is, how are they adding? How are they adding to the gospel? Well, verse 1 gives us the answer. Unless you are circumcised and according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. We hear it again in verse 5. In verse 5, the Pharisees come along now that they're in, um, uh, now that they're in Jerusalem and that they are meeting to discuss this. The Pharisees come along in the midst of their testimony and they say, nope, 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 nope. You have to be circumcised. If you are not circumcised, then you cannot be saved. Circumcision is at the heart, in other words, of Judaic law and custom. Circumcision is at the heart of adding to the gospel for this group. In Genesis chapter 17, we understand circumcision is very much a part of the covenant that God establishes with Israel. When he talks to Israel in Genesis chapter 17, he says that you shall be circumcised in your flesh or in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and between you. And in verse 12 it says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And it says, Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. And it says, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not uncircumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He has broken my covenant. And so therefore we understand that circumcision is very much tied to covenant in the Old Testament. 
Therefore, we can understand some people who might say, well, listen, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. But actually, circumcision is, there's a larger point at work besides just the actual act of circumcision. Circumcision reflects law-keeping. And so it's beyond just simply being circumcised. It's the ideal of keeping the law and the customs of Moses. And they're saying, if you don't do all of that, you can't be saved. That's the point. So these folks in verse 1, they go down to Antioch and they stir up the trouble saying, hey, all you people in Antioch, y'all ain't saved. Y'all won't be saved unless you get circumcised. And then Paul and Barnabas, they begin to discuss this, and then they um, are chosen to go to Jerusalem, and then many of the people in Jerusalem are saying the same thing to them. Hey, if you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. Now, adding to the gospel is frequently done for at least two reasons. One is because we love to establish ways to earn salvation. We love to create criteria to establish salvation, and it always just so happens to be the criteria that we can meet. So we create these, we create these tests, and we're the ones that can pass it. And we say, hey, you got to do this in order to be saved. The Bible, or, or, or not the Bible, but a commentator by a, a gentleman pastor that I've been quoting a lot through Acts by the name of Tony Morita, he says that this gospel of the saving exclusivity of, of Jesus by the grace of Jesus will always be disputed because the default mode of the human heart is works-based righteousness, not faith-based righteousness. Circumcision and obedience to the law gave an opportunity for them to earn their salvation. And we always love opportunities to earn our salvation. But we also frequently add to the gospel because we get truth confused with what's familiar to us. We get truth confused with what's comfortable to us. We get truth confused with what's acceptable for us in our cultures and in our traditions. And so we take all of those things that are comfortable, that are familiar, that are acceptable, and we weave them in as truth. And we say, you have to do, yeah, it's true, you have to trust Jesus by faith and, and turn in repentance. But then also, I grew up with all this other stuff, and you got to do this other stuff too in order to be saved. See, circumcision was all this camp knew, so it was easy to bring circumcision over as a requirement for salvation because again, we've confused truth with the familiar. We confuse truth with the comfortable. We confuse truth with the acceptable. Does that make sense? This happens all the time in religious circles. Activities inherited through our traditions. Activities inherited through our culture, our ethnicity, our parents, our previous church, or our childhood church gets adopted as requirements for salvation. How many times do we tie, for example, the people in this room, how many times have you tied the truth of the gospel to a certain style of music, a certain lyrical composition, a certain style of dress, a, a certain article of clothing? How many times have we created salvation tests using standards that are outside of Scripture? For example, what version of the Bible you use? What kind of board games do you play? You play Dungeons and Dragons, right? You obviously must be of the devil and are going to hell. 
what type of movies you watch. Now hear me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't establish guardrails on what we wear, and that we shouldn't establish guardrails on what we watch and what we listen to, but we, we, we should establish guardrails in the sense that we must all be led by the Spirit to guard against our own temptations. And there are certain things that lead us into other things that we should shy away from. I get that. I'm not, I'm not speaking against that if, that, if that, that, that's your conviction that you, that you wrestle with. But at the same time, oftentimes we create salvation tests where there are none or where there should be none. When you require more than Jesus for salvation, then you are adding to the gospel. And you have stepped into a very dangerous place, a place that is worth opposing, which is what Paul and Barnabas are doing. Notice that the scripture says, which is my next point, the gospel is simple and worth fighting for. Notice that they say there is a big dissension over this. If these people come along and they say, yeah, we're going to, we need you guys to get circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul says, no, 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 no. And there's a big argument over this. They're not going to rest on this. And then they end up getting sent to Jerusalem. And then when they get to Jerusalem, there is even a bigger debate over this. They get the council together to discuss this as a group. See, this is not a small matter to overlook. Why do you think it was so important, though? Why do you think that, was, that it was so important that it riled up Paul and it riled up Barnabas? And, 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 and why do you think it was so important that it drove the church at Antioch to say, hey, y'all need to go up to Jerusalem and talk to the apostles about this? And why do you think that it was so important that the apostles said, hey, we need to have a big council discussion about this? Well, there's two reasons, at least. One is that the people who've been saved are being impacted by this. There's people that Paul has reached, Barnabas has reached on their first missionary journey, and now you're saying all those people, their salvation is irrelevant, or, 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 or not relevant, rather, that it didn't happen. But then also, the people to be saved are being impacted. Because the more you add, the tougher it gets. And Peter makes this clear in Acts chapter 15 when he says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter is referring to his experience in Acts chapter 10 with a man by the name of Cornelius. And if you've been following along in this series, you've heard us talk about Cornelius and his household. Cornelius was a Roman soldier from the Italian cohort, cohort and, 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 and he received a message from an angel that said, hey, there's a gentleman by the name of Peter. You need to go send your people to tell him to come see, uh, see you. And at the same time that this messenger came, Peter was receiving a vision or was given a vision from heaven by God concerning clean food and unclean food. And the food came down on a blanket multiple times, on a sheet multiple times, rather, and Peter said, no, 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 I don't eat that. That's not clean. God says, it is clean because I said it's clean. And they go back and forth on this several times. What I have cleansed, do not call unclean. And then Peter wakes up, and when Peter wakes up, guess who's there? The people that 
Cornelius sick. And Peter said, oh, okay, I'm supposed to go with you. And then he goes with them and he shares the gospel. And when he shares the gospel, Cornelius and his household get saved. Uncircumcised people get saved. And Peter says, hey, who am I to withhold the Holy Spirit? Or who am I to give in the way of what God is doing, basically? The Holy Spirit has touched him in the same way he's touched us. Who am I to withhold baptism, rather? Are you tracking with that? And so this is what Peter is referring to in Acts chapter 15. He continues in verse 8. He says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter's point is important for us when we think about these additions to the gospel. In so many ways, he's saying they didn't have our culture and traditions, and yet the Spirit saved them. He's saying they didn't have our culture and traditions, and yet God cleansed their hearts. They didn't have our culture and traditions, and yet Literally, there is no distinction in God's eyes between us and them. Hear that. Because sometimes our salvation tests become what? Holy tests too, don't they? Oh, you watch, oh, oh, you watch Harry Potter? Well, I don't watch Harry Potter. Cha-ching, right? We got, like, we got like holy tests that we're cashing in on. But notice Peter is saying, my culture and traditions don't present me in any brighter light before God as these men and women who were saved in Cornelius' household. What did they have that gave them cleansing? What did they have that, 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 that allowed the Spirit to indwell them? What did they have that, that literally created no distinction between them and the Jewish people that came into their household and preached the gospel to them? This is what they had, faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter says this, don't test God. Don't test, literally, listen to this. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you placing God to the test? God has stepped in and gifted these men and women with salvation. He's given them his spirit, given them his spirit. He's cleansed their hearts. He's brought them into the family of God, adopted them. And none of them, none of them have what have, follow our cultures and traditions in the same way, in the same light necessarily. And he's been doing this all the way through Paul and Barnabas' journey. And so he says, don't get in the way of God. Why are you going to try and test God by coming behind God and basically saying, you weren't quite ready. There's still more for you. And then the more that you give them is something that you can't even keep. Paul gives us an echo of Peter's words in Galatians 5. He says this, listen, verse 1 of chapter 5 in Galatians, for freedom, 
Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Notice what he says. He says you are literally severed from Christ when you try to create standards in order to save yourselves. When you add to his gospel, you are separating yourself from his gospel. When we try to bring in a new standard in accordance to the law as a test for our salvation, we nullify the work of salvation through Christ. Why is the gospel worth fighting for? Because when you add to the gospel, you empty the gospel of his power. When you add to the gospel, you empty the gospel of the power that is the power of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When you add to the gospel, the only standard that remains is a standard that none of us can keep. And it's a standard that none of us can ultimately be saved by. But thank God that's not the way that we are saved. In verse 11 of chapter 15, we hear Peter say, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord and Jesus that just as they will. We believe that the same way we're saved, which is not by our conformity to the law, but is through the grace of Jesus Christ, is the same way that they're being saved, which is through the grace of our Lord Jesus. Peter's point is simple. The people who aren't circumcised will be saved the same way as the people that have been circumcised. The grace of God. Saints, stop adding tests to your salvation. Stop testing God by adding tests to your salvation. The style of music that you play does not save you. The style of dress that you wear doesn't save you. Whether your worship is a little more expressive or a little more reflective does not save you. Whether your preacher preaches primarily through books of the Bible or whether your preacher preaches primarily on subjects in the Bible will not save you. Whether you read from the KJV or whether you read from the ESV will not save you. Here is what saves us. The grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ saves us. By faith alone, through grace alone, we've been saved in Christ alone. You don't have to look for additional evidence to settle this matter because the Lord settled it thousands of years ago in the book of Acts. When we look along the journey, what is happening? People that have no Jewish background are being saved. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit is moving throughout the land. Everywhere where Paul and Barnabas, everywhere their feet tread, God is doing work. And many of those people probably never even heard of circumcision, more, more or less actually performed it. 
And so in verse 12 it says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent that David has fallen. That has, I'm sorry, rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild his ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James, the half-brother of Jesus, has sort of established himself amongst the apostles as a leader. And so he steps forth and he says, hey, this is, this is what I'm seeing and this is what I'm hearing. This is why I feel like this is the direction that we need to go. So, of course, you know, Peter is, is well-respected. James is respected. And so now Paul and Barnabas have the, the respect of the apostles as they, as they begin to step forth and say, hey, this is the direction that we need to go, and this is the direction that we need to send back to the Gentiles in, ter in terms of how they should go. James's response is simple. First, James says the Gentile salvation was confirmed through Peter's witness. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, and God moved by his spirit and touched that house, God showed us he was for the Gentile people, even without their conformity to our culture and our traditions and our law. But then he also, James also makes the point that the Gentile salvation is the fulfillment of God's promise from ages ago. And we don't stand in the way of what he has started. And he quotes Amos chapter 9 to make that point. He's making the point that, listen, that God has said from times of old that when he rebuilds the house of David, he's going to save the Gentiles. All a remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. By holding circumcision in the law over the heads of the Gentiles, not only are we undermining the work that God has already done, but we're undermining and undercutting the work that God is doing. The gospel is simple. Gospel's worth fighting for. See, we must remember that as we are leading people to the faith, the gospel already has given us a call to a narrow road. And see, what we love to do is make the road even narrow, more narrow. It's already narrow. It doesn't need help, right? Me just walking this road, trusting Jesus is hard enough. You don't have to tell me I got to wear a suit with it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's already hard enough. And so therefore, don't make the road any more narrow than the road already is. Don't impose unfair demands and burdens, thereby making it even more challenging to walk. Paul, Barnabas, James, and Peter are trying to reduce the gospel to its fundamental essence. Trying to get all of the complexity out of the way, all of the cultural norms that we have read into it, and trying to get to the very heart of the gospel, which is faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, love of God and love of neighbor. 
And so with that, James goes into verse 19 and 20, and he turns his actions to, uh, turns the actions that he believes the Gentiles should adopt, or turns to those actions that he believes the Gentiles should adopt in light of this division that has arisen. Which leads me to my next point and my final point. The gospel is simple and about receiving grace and reflecting it. The gospel is simple and about receiving grace and reflecting it. Look at verse 19. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Each one of these things are, co are connected to the law in some way and possibly represent Gentile practices that would prove to be highly offensive, or I'm sorry, Jewish practices, yeah, Gentile practices that would be highly offensive in Jewish context. Talks about the ideal of eating food that, that has been sacrificed to idols. Talks about the ideal of, of sexual immorality, and that sexual immorality obviously is a moral piece but there's also, some, there's also some, some ceremonial piece involved in this too because it's talking about sexual practice as it relates to the temple. There's a lot of temple sexuality and priestess and, and prostitution and, and priestess tied and connected together. And so it's really drilling into that. But it is, it is also talking about just the moral ethic of sexuality, living a life that is pure and holy before God. But then it, goes, then it goes back to the ceremonial when it talks about not eating something that's been strangled or something that's from blood and not eating blood because the Gentile practice had a lot of connections to eating blood, drinking blood and eating dead animals or animals near dead or animals that have been strangled. All of these things that would have been woefully offensive to Jews. Many of the Gentiles didn't see any big deal about it. And so what's happening here? Well, the gospel has saved us by grace. Or Jesus has saved us by grace in the gospel. And he sends us out, not as recipients of grace, but as reflectors of grace. See, here's what's happening. And James says as much in verse 21. He says, for, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The law is everywhere. And people who obey and follow the law are everywhere. And so as James sends Paul and Barnabas back, what he's doing is he's sending Paul and Barnabas back in a way that they can begin to develop fellowship and communion with people who are in Christ but are also of the Jewish heritage and customs and traditions. He says, basically he's saying, as you go back, don't be offensive. Are you tracking with this? Paul highlights this even in 1 Corinthians. When he's talking about food sacrificed to idols, and he's talking about not allowing our freedom to become stumbling block for others. He highlights this in Romans as well. There's several places where, where the point is not necessarily the act. The point is extending grace to my family, the family and God, so that I don't create stumbling blocks for them. Does that make sense? So maybe you do play Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe you do watch Harry Potter. But if you have a brother or sister who struggles with Harry Potter, struggles with the whole ideal of it, you know what you don't do? When they come over to the house, 
Yo, it's watch Harry Potter. Ha, 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 I got freedom in Jesus. That's, that's what you don't do. Recipients of grace reflect grace. And so, and so what it means is it means dying in some ways to freedoms. This is the point. This is what James sends back to Antioch. He says, yes, we're, we're not going to overburden you. But at the same time, we want you to sacrifice for the sake of the brothers around you. And then verse 22, it says, It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Bersabbas and, and Silas, leading men um, among the brothers with the following letter. And then it goes into this letter and read, uh, he reads, the, or, or we read the letter, that we're reading the letter together. It says, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles and Antioch, and Syria and Cecilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of, Lord Je of, the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation, they delivered the letter, and where they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Notice how the letter articulates what the Judaizers are doing, the Pharisees are doing in verse 24. Look at verse 24. It says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, having come to one accord, I'm sorry, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Troubled you. This is what adding to the gospel does. Troubles us. Unsettles us. Divides us. Have you ever had these feelings as you deal with additions and amendments to the gospel? And, 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 notice, and notice, notice this, even though they've received no instruction from us. They've gone down and they've added all these instructions, even though we gave them no instruction. In other words, there's nowhere where we've said that you have to do this in order to be saved. Let's apply this to our now. How many times do we add? How many times do we go and we trouble people and we burden people? and we unsettle their minds when there has been no instruction from the apostles, from Scripture, where God has said nothing about the things that we're telling people they have to do 
in order to be saved and right with God. How often does that happen? How often does that happen personally? How often does that happen collectively as churches, right? And you know what it leads to? It leads to more burden, not less. It leads to more sorrow, not more joy. It leads to more grief. It leads to more frustration. It leads to less assurance, unsettling of the mind. Whereas I was confident in my walk with God. Now I don't even know if I'm saved. But notice the result of the letter. James brings the letter, and with the letter comes freedom. Notice the result of the letter in verse 31. Starting in verse 30, they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. We just read the letter for ourselves. You look at it, you say, man, it's not a whole lot. Where's, where, where are they getting the joy from? They're getting the joy from the freedom of the letter. These folks had came down and said, hey, man, clip, clip, circumcision. Now, and now they're saying, no, 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 no. You don't have to worry about that. And they're like, whew, man, praise God, man. Just getting nervous about that, right? Moses obeying the law. Oh, man, I can't obey this law perfectly. Oh, man, okay, praise God. Man, that was a close call, right? And so when we, when, we, when we allow the gospel to be what the gospel is, joy will flow. So one friend of ours used to tell me and my wife, sometimes we try to play Holy Spirit Junior, man. We try to set up all of these parameters for people that we feel like we got to set up because we set them up in our own lives. Let the gospel do the work. Let the spirit of God do the work of sanctification. The non-essentials that we force into the essential bucket, they rob us of joy. And this is the impact when we don't allow the gospel to remain simple. When I look at most of the joylessness in Christianity... What's interesting is that what I notice in most of the joylessness of Christianity is that it is typically over things that the gospel has not told us our requirements. We fuss, we fight, we argue, we hate each other, we despise each other, and then when we look at scripture, you know the reason why we're fussing and fighting and arguing and despising each other? Because we don't really have anything grounded in the scriptures to point to and say, this is what God has said. And so we just all got to go around and talk about what we think he said. But when we allow the simplicity of the gospel to work, there's joy and there's freedom involved in that. And so let me share three things, three questions, or really one question. As you're thinking about you know, what, what is a, what is a as, as you're discipling people and you're thinking about the type of instruction, ask yourself this question. Is the instruction I'm giving 
Is it principle? Is it prudence? Or is it preference? Principle, prudence, preference. In other words, principle is, it's scripture. It's rooted in scripture, bound in scripture. This is what we got to do, thus says the Lord. Prudence is wisdom. Something that as I look at scripture and I think about the context, think about the place, it's me, it's me not watching Harry Potter. If I know my brother and sister may be struggling with the whole idea of Harry Potter, that's prudence. Doesn't mean everybody has to do it, but, 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 for, but for the sake of others, I don't do it. And then there's just preference. It's just I don't like that. I don't like when Tyrone wears his hat in church. I don't like when Mother Bird wears her hat in church. That's preference. Know the difference. And be sure that you aren't holding brothers and sisters that you are walking with bound to your preferences. Root your discipleship in principle and lead out with principle. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you.